Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Uh, welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society, and I am a host on the channel. And today I am pleased to have with us Roland Phillips. Mr. Phillips is a publisher at the August and Venerable Publishing House, John Murray. He is a graduate of Cambridge University, and today we are speaking about his book, a Spy Named Orphan, The Enigma of Donald McLean. Welcome, Mr. Phillips. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Mr. Phillips, what is the primary thesis of your book? Uh, the primary thesis of my book is just how important a spy Donald McLean was. He was one of the Cambridge spies uh, recruited in the 1930s, and he remained a spy until his uh, defection to Moscow in May 1951. But until um, the some papers were declassified uh, two years ago, and until I saw some family papers of the McLean family, uh, I... I had not realized, I don't think anyone understood quite how important he was, and what is more, quite how serious it was that we failed to catch him in time uh, when we knew perfectly well that that, uh, both we and the Americans, that there'd been a spy of that magnitude in the British Foreign Office. Now, uh, Sir Roger Makins, later Lord Sherfield, uh, who has a walking part in the story, uh, was your grandfather. Can you That's tell, correct. Can you yes. tell the audience a little bit about him? And yes, he, he was a uh, senior diplomat. Uh, he ended his career as British ambassador in Washington. Um, but in the 40s and 50s, he was Donald McLean's boss. Um, he uh, first came across McLean uh, in 1946-7, when they were the only two British diplomats on a highly secret committee uh, in in Washington, the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, where he worked, where they worked with the Secretary of State and and senior military figures, and uh, that decided nu- uh, Allied nuclear policy post-war. Then he was his boss in London at the time of his defection. He gave, Roger Makins gave Donald McLean, McLean's last job, which was head of the American department just at the beginning of the Korean War, and was widely blamed. He did know he was the spy they'd been looking for for all these years uh, just before the defection, but was told that McLean was being followed by the Secret Service, which indeed he was, and that he, Makins, was to act as normal. However, uh, he wasn't told that McLean wasn't followed in the evenings and at weekends. So when McLean asked for the next following day off work, Roger Makins acted as normal and said, yes, of course. And that was the day he defected. So um, when I used to talk to my grandfather, 
about McLean, he was always pretty irritated at being blamed for McLean's defection when, in fact, he'd only been following his own instructions. Can you give the audience uh, some idea of Donald McLean's family background and especially the character and career of his father, Sir Donald McLean? Absolutely. So um, one of the um, theses of my book is is the uh, what would now seem insane trust that um, the establishment put into uh, those they saw as similar to them. And they saw uh, Donald McLean as very similar to them. He'd been to a top school. He'd been to Cambridge University. And uh, in the interview for the Foreign Office, simply a couple of character references were all that were needed. There was no vetting at all. If they had vetted him, they first of all would have seen quite how outspokenly communist he'd been in his university days, but also they would have um, might have thought, well, this man who passes for one of us, he was always beautifully dressed, he was very good looking, very tall, very patrician looking. Um, in fact, his father had been born into very, very humble circumstances. His father was a shoemaker and crofter who who uh, who lost his home in the in the far islands of Scotland and ended up in South Wales, but who made a considerable name for himself uh, as a he was a strong Presbyterian throughout his life, Sir Donald McLean, which he became, and we'll call him to distinguish him from his son, and uh, moved to South Wales as a solicitor, never went to university, went to a, um, uh, a free school, never went to university, and there worked um, for good works as well as being a solicitor. He was uh, uh, chairman of the local temperance movements. He founded a remarkable charity, which is still going today, against cruelty to children, where he and he spot he was spotted by the leader of the Liberal Party in the House of Parliament, uh, who, and who persuaded him to become an MP. So he ended up as Minister of Education. So he had a, a very, from humble origins, he had a remarkable career. He insisted on family prayers twice a day. He wouldn't allow alcohol or tobacco in his house. And above all, he instilled in his children uh, the need to follow their conscience just he didn't quite mean it as as his middle and most brilliant son did, uh, which was follow a political conscience. He meant a conscience towards God. So um, I believe that Sir Donald was and McLean's upbringing was a, a massive influence on his communism and a reason why it wasn't spotted that he might have felt some class resentfulness in the class-ridden world in which he moved. Uh, how did McLean's years at his public school, Gresham's, influence, if at all, his future beliefs and uh, the character and career, his character and career as a spy? I think they played a very large part alongside his upbringing, as I've just described. Gresham's was a very liberal school. It encouraged freedom of thought and debate when the private schools of Britain didn't necessarily do that. Um, they were still uh, really working to, for their 
pupils to go out and run the empire, but Gresham's instilled more of a public service factor. It had a very strange disciplinary code, which any people would want to keep buried. And I think it's important to remember, too, that, as just described, McLean was the first one of his family uh, who's, who was going to go to university, who was at a fee-paying school. He was a brilliant uh, schoolboy. And I think he learned at that school both to further enhance his um, his deeply held beliefs about um in this case, equality and um, peace, and and also to keep that hidden and be outwardly a success, which he was a successful schoolboy and he was a very very successful diplomat. I I believe at that school he at Gresham's he he was able to learn to live a double life successfully. Can you discuss the atmosphere, political and social, at Cambridge in 1933 when Maclean went up there? Yes, it was very um, uh, febrile. Uh, it was Hitler had come to power the year before, so there were the first rumblings of fascism on the continent. Um, the depression was on. There were a lot of uh, Britain was riven by poverty. Parts of Britain was riven by poverty, not necessarily the people at Cambridge, but there were while Maclean was there. The hunger marches when the starving of the north of England marched on London to show uh, the capital their plight. Um, and there was a general feeling that these, the generation that had led the country into the First World War and the terrible slaughter that ensued still weren't getting it right. So that communism was very was just starting up at Cambridge. The first communist cell was formed in Maclean's first year. But the Socialist Society, of which Maclean was a member from early on, was a very vibrant and and most people of uh, conscience and feeling were communists at that time because the alternative was really shocking. And and communism was the party of peace at that point. It wasn't known. Stalin's uh, worst atrocities weren't known. And it seemed pretty ideal, the notion of uh, equality. So so it was a it was a political hothouse and uh, one that McLean dove into. When exactly did McLean become a communist? He became a. He never joined. The, he didn't join the party until he was in Moscow. But he became a communist. Uh, he he started attending meetings in his first year at Cambridge. But he became an outspoken communist. His father died at the end of McLean's first year at Cambridge. After which he became unshackled, really, and became a rad, wrote radical. Uh, communist poetry in the college magazine. He was known as McLennan um, in in various other publications. He wrote book reviews of very left wing case. So he became communist as soon as he got to Cambridge, but he uh, became an outspoken one in his second year and third year. Who was Arnold Deutsch? Arnold Deutsch was a remarkable man. So at Cambridge, McLean met. Kim Philby. And Philby was a year ahead of him at Cambridge and had left and um, 
had married, had been to Vienna. He'd taken part in anti-fascist riots and married a Viennese communist who was a friend of Arnold Deutsch. Uh, when McLean left Cambridge, he was planning to go to Russia to teach English. And Philby asked him to supper uh, just after he left and said to him, if uh, you could do a lot more good uh, for the cause uh, than by going to Russia, if you were to follow your uh, your parents' plan for you, you're brilliant, uh, and go into the foreign office as you originally planned. And if you are inclined to do that, I think you should meet a friend of my wife's, Arnold Deutsch. Deutsch was a um, was a, a Viennese communist who worked in Vienna. He was very brilliant. He he got a uh, early doctorate in uh, at the age of only 25 in chemistry um, and but always studied psychology on the side and after he left Vienna University he became a he worked with Wilhelm Reich who was a uh, disciple of Freud's so he was right in the psychological um, world and he for Reich, he worked. He worked. He ran a publishing house uh, called Munster Verlag that published uh, uh, material for what was known as the Sex Poll uh, Organization, which was Reich's organization that, which stated that you couldn't be uh, politically liberated unless you were sexually liberated. So um, he, uh, Reich, was known as the prophet of the better orgasm, and. Uh, uh, not surprisingly, perhaps, Deutsch quite soon found himself in trouble with um, with the Viennese police as a pornographer and came to London as a student of psychology. Uh, but also he was recruiting for, uh, for Moscow Centre. And he brilliantly, I think, realised that this was the only moment so far, and indeed the only moment afterwards, where you could recruit people on purely ideological grounds because of what I was saying about what's happening elsewhere in the world. And further, he thought that if I can, if he could recruit the best young people straight out of university, any communism they'd displayed at university could be put down to the foolishness of youth. And they would also stand a very good chance of um, getting to the top in the in the professions that, that ran uh, British life. And so Deutsch was the recruiter for all of the Cambridge Five. And as soon as Maclean met him, he leapt. He was deeply charismatic, Deutsch, and Maclean leapt at the chance to work for him. You say on page 56 that Maclean's relatively humble family background and the lack of private means made him in his own mind as compared to his friends and acquaintances at Cambridge declassé. Would this be an additional uh, reason for his um, spying career? Yes, I think there was, a, there was an element of, of uh, resentment about not having private income, which became uh, more noticeable when he was in the Foreign Office, particularly when he was serving in Paris at the beginning of the war, because uh, at that point, Everyone in the Foreign Office, all his contemporaries, did have private incomes, were expected to entertain on them, and it was very much a, a part of the um, life of the 
uh, well-born diplomats. So I think that was always a, a niggle for McLean, yes. Uh, just to go back to the question of uh, vetting uh, for candidates for the, for the diplomatic service, in the case of Philby, he was essentially blocked because of um, his communist past at Cambridge yes. uh, by, so, the, by the committee, Phil, or at least one member of the committee. Yes, Philby's references. So you had to have references from your uh, school and university. And Philby's reference uh, did make much of his um, communism at Cambridge, whereas McLean's, and I don't know whether it's because he asked it not to, uh, his tutor did not make any reference to his political activities at Cambridge. So he was asked, but however, they had, um, uh, it was not unknown that he'd been very political, and he was asked in his interview for the Foreign Office, one of the interviewers said, we note you are very left-wing at Cambridge, are you still? Uh, to which McLean gave the entirely truthful answer, I'm working on it. So, uh, and that was enough. They didn't investigate further. That was enough. So in essence, uh, like a lot of things in uh, British or, in fact, American life, public life at the time, it was um, a little bit haphazard, not, not entirely bureaucratized and routinized uh, process. Absolutely. In fact, there was no positive vetting until after... I mean, a direct result of McLean's defection was positive vetting in the Foreign Office. There was none until then. They didn't even have a head of security uh, until the Second World War when they thought we better have one. So when in McLean's early days, he was able to take any document he wished out in his briefcase. Nobody checked. Nobody uh, did anything. So it was it was a society run on trust. So that was the case in terms of not having a, a security apparatus set up at the Foreign Office even after uh, the exposure of uh, Mr. King? Absolutely right, yes. And it's why um, we'll, we'll come on to when, when it was realized there had been a spy in the Foreign Office, it was why they simply never looked at McLean or indeed any senior um, uh, diplomats. They looked at foreign workers. They looked at secretaries. But they they naturally assumed that none of their own class um, would be could possibly be spies. Uh, can you explain why McLean did not um, give up spying for Moscow after he heard about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of uh, 1939? Yes, that is a very good question, because a lot of uh, British communists did give up. That was uh, Moscow was in bed with the enemy. And besides, patriotism uh, then trumped uh, ideology. I always feel in McLean's case, he was able to hold patriotism and ideology um, alongside each other. And in that particular instance, that was the first point I realized that his communism was of such a um, ideological or um, theoretically based communism, because, of course, by then he also knew and a lot of communists had given up communism about Stalin's purges and, and the, the horrors perpetrated in the name of communism. Yet he stuck to it because he or he 
genuinely believed throughout his life uh, that it was the way to a a better world and above all a peaceful world. He believed, but it was done on such theoretical level that he was able to discount these things that were happening um, all around him. And, and that he was hearing about from the Soviet Union. And to the extent that he also, he hated spying. Uh, he likened it to being uh, like a lavatory attendant, a filthy job, but someone has to do it, he said. But yet he kept doing it because he believed so firmly in the theory of what he was doing. So uh, that was why he, he didn't give up at that point. You state on page uh, 103 in reference to the Russo-Finnish war that based upon a tip from McLean about uh, potential Anglo-French military intervention on the side of the Finns that uh, Stalin decided to, quote, withdraw Russian troops from Finland, unquote. Uh, I presume what you mean, in fact, is that uh, Stalin decided at that point to negotiate a relatively... Um, soft peace with the Finns rather than a harsh one in order to um, uh, prevent the British, and, um, the British and the French from intervening on the Finn side. But yes. doesn't that raise the question of um, how much or to what extent the information that McLean and later on other spies of the Fabulous Five, Fabulous Five being um, McLean, Philby, Burgess, Blunt, and Karen Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, how do we know, or is there any way of ascertaining in terms, or have you discovered in your research for the book, um, what was the uh, process, or even to the extent that uh, Stalin um, was taking in uh, and acting upon the information he was getting from these spies, as well as, uh, of course, uh, other spies in the you know other parts in Western country, Nazi Germany, etc. Um, in terms of the historical literature, there's sort of um, some historians say that he was. Others, uh, like uh, Vladislav Zubok, state that quote. We also do not know how Stalin reacted to the analytical intelligence feedback. Unquote, that McLean and other spies are giving him. So, did you, did you, um, or, or you were able to actually come up with anything empirical and concrete in that area? There are very few instances, but uh, the short answer is, is no, because uh, the KGB files, which were briefly open in the early 1990s, are very much closed now. So short of being able to look at the, I gather, volumes and volumes of McLean material in there, I can't say anything definitive. There are certainly moments when uh, the Russians are able to display knowledge of uh, events and telegrams in the um, after the war to do with the Dardanelles, for example, um, that quite clearly uh, and that example, uh, without going into detail, was uh, McLean was one of a very, very select number of people who who saw the minutes of that. Uh, uh, of an important meeting in Washington, and yet when the um, uh, American ambassador confronted 
the Russian foreign minister about it, he was amazed that the Russian foreign minister knew such detail. So there are moments like that that one can say it's more than likely uh, that McLean's uh, work had had changed events. But on the whole, it's 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 um, it's more guesswork than that. It's it's not possible to be historically exact without looking at the KGB files, which I would love to do. Of course. Mm. Can you describe McLean's wife, how they met, her character, and her part in the story of McLean's career as a spy? Yes. And Melinda Marling, she was called. She was an American. Um, and uh, she came from a, a well-off East Coast family, but a very broken home. Um, she moved around a lot as a child. They lived in Switzerland for a time. Um, and um, she was in Paris. She she wasn't uh, great at school and, um, and left school young, went to Paris uh, with her sister in 1938 to study at, at the Sorbonne. And I think one of the keys to Melinda's character, and she played a very important role in McLean's life, uh, espionage life, as well as obviously his other life, um, is that she loved danger. And it, it struck me first that the American embassy had told all its citizens to leave France as the war uh, became inevitable through 1939 and Melinda's sister had indeed left Paris and gone back to America. Melinda stayed on and on till long after the war started. They, they met in November, 1939 and um, she was a, not at all a political person herself. Uh, she was never heard to express a political opinion. Uh, Donald McLean fell madly in love with her. They met in a cafe on the left bank uh, the sort of artist bohemian quarter of Paris to which they're both drawn and he fell madly in love with her and she didn't want anything to do with this stuffed shirt um, very English diplomat until so he took the remarkable risk of of telling her he was a Soviet agent at which point um, they they got together and started their love affair. And and that was a remarkable risk for him to take, but it, it did the trick. And I think that her then the, their early married life, she wouldn't marry him until uh, the only black mark in McLean's file, foreign office file, is that he wasn't on hand to evacuate the embassy in June 1940, when the Germans were three days away from um, from marching into Paris because he was off getting married to Melinda. They just made it out of France on the last boat from Bordeaux after the fall of France. Uh, generally, I mean, it was an extraordinary um, series of risks, unnecessary risks um, they took, which I believe, I think, um, meant she... She was excited by the danger, and that would also explain the fact that she knew why she stuck to him. I'm sure we'll talk in a minute about um, his appalling behaviour shortly before his um, 
defection. And that's why she explains to me why she stuck to him. And I found some family papers in the McLean family uh, that uh, make it quite clear she knew throughout about his espionage and knew about the plans for his defection. Do you think she would have married him if uh, she had not been at that point in time uh, with child? I think she would have done, yes. Um, and uh, they they lost that child. Oh, the child was stillborn. Um, but I think she would have done, yes. And, and indeed she had to because otherwise she would have been stuck in France. The only way she could get out on a British warship was being married to a Brit. Can you relate uh, what were McLean's duties in Washington, D.C. as second secretary at the British Embassy and how successful he was in providing information to Moscow? Yes, this was his his prime <coughs> uh, period of diplomacy, of, of espionage um, and, and diplomacy to an extent. Um, he went as second secretary and he had access to uh, all the chancery, which is the sort of engine room of a, of a embassy um, documents. He, could, he saw everything that came in and out of the embassy, which and he went there in June 44, which was just at the point when the, um, uh, the, the, the conferences, Potsdam, Yalta, Tehran, uh, particularly Potsdam and Yalta, that sh- settled the shape of Europe but and the conferences headed by the Prime Minister and the President and Stalin um, that settled the shape of Europe were being planned. And we know from tiny snippets that have been decoded of the uh, telegraph traffic to Moscow that he gave away all the um, telegrams between Churchill and Roosevelt discussing their policy positions on those uh, for those conferences. For example, uh, when they were discussing the borders of Poland, they and they they give their sort of hold line and say that, that if we will not we will uh, move from this if. Uh, if Molotov, the Russian foreign minister, is adamant. So uh, Moscow and Molotov knew if he was adamant that he would get a lot more out of the negotiation. So that was the end of the war, his his, his uh, primary and perhaps most devastating um, espionage. And then post-war, he uh, was on this atomic energy commission which meant he was McLean's special role on it was to um, uh, handle the the Belgian government who because of the Congo being a uh, formerly colonial power of theirs um, territory of theirs uh, which is where the uranium was mined um, so McLean's primary role was to negotiate the uranium uh, that went to America, and therefore he could know, or the Russians could know exactly how much uranium uh, was coming in, and therefore how many bombs the Americans were capable of making, which uh, I believe um, gave Stalin the confidence, that, and the number of bombs was far, far 
uh, smaller than than the Americans were publicly claiming, and I believe that gave Stalin the confidence to accelerate his own um, uh, atom program to the point where he um, was able to um, uh, test his bomb two years ahead of anyone's estimates. Uh, how important, if at all, was uh, McLean's information? In, um, in terms of that um, Russian development of uh, atom bomb, uh, important? Well, again, it's unquantifiable, um, but, I, but I think, uh, which is why I'm quite careful to say I believe it helped give Stalin confidence, but I think that uh, it was nonetheless as a uh, regard of the um, Allied um, capabilities. It was it was pretty useful. So it was it was uh, useful and important information, but of a different vein than say the type of information that Klaus Fuchs was providing. Yes, because because Fuchs was giving away the actual uh, technical know-how. Um, McLean was giving away more politically and dip, dip, diplomatically sensitive information rather than the technology. Can you explain what was the Venona code-breaking operation and why it took so long to positively identify McLean as the British as the spy in the British Embassy? Yes, and this is the sort of crux of the second half of my book. So, um, uh, by law, every uh, telegram leaving the United States and going to Russia, a copy had to be lodged at the um, one of the three telegraph offices, um, cable and wireless and so on. And uh, after the war, this meant there were hundreds of thousands of telegrams, all in code, um, all, it was believed, um, produced under the one-time pad system by which the code changed um, each time it was each time a document was coded, so it was it was thought that probably would be a fairly hopeless task to try and look at these. In 1946, it was decided that um, these had better be looked at. It was expected that it would be largely trade and shipping information. Uh, at which point, a brilliant man called Meredith Gardner enters the story. Uh, Gardner was a remarkable linguist and a brilliant man. He, in the war, he'd been teaching uh, at the University of Ohio when he was um, taken into uh, the signals code-breaking department, what became the NSA. And um, he was, for example, was so appalled at how slowly the Japanese material was being decoded in the war that he taught himself Japanese in three months in order to help out here. So Meredith Gardner realised with the help of um, some early computing power that some of the one-time pads had been used twice um, particularly around 1941 when, when the Soviets were um, were invaded and, and had to join the war earlier than they would have liked. They obviously hadn't been able to produce enough pads. So into this chink, um, Gardner began his work. 
quite soon it was uh, one of some of the uh, I mean, and it's such difficult work that if I say by 1980, when Venona which was the operation, was wound up. They'd only decoded 15% of this material. You'll see how hard it was. But quite early on, in 1947, they realized that um, uh, that some of these material had foreign office serial numbers on. In, in fact, it was the documents, I, the telegrams I was talking about to do at the Potsdam conference. And therefore, there'd been a, a spy in the uh, Washington embassy. Um, it took them three and a half years to identify that that spy was McLean because, first of all, the, the trust, I mean, the head of security at foreign office, for there was such a post by then, uh, has, there's a memo on file saying it won't be a senior man. We must look at any secretaries who had a nervous breakdown around that time. So they thought it could be any one of 6,000 people who've passed through the embassy um, and refused to look at the senior people. Um, and indeed, to start with, it only looked at casual workers, I mean, outside workers. They refused to look at any Brit, because no Brit could possibly be a spy. Um, and it wasn't until some 18 months later that uh, they decoded, uh, they found a tiny, another tiny fragment um, of code that, that they decoded where it says Homer, for such was the code name of McLean at that time. Homer thinks we ought to, and then there was something about uh, Greece. They 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 saw the telegram was about Greece. So at that point they realised that um, that it was someone who was listened to, who had opinions on foreign policy and so on. At which point they raised their sights um, to look at a um, to look at more senior people. So and they uh, and the but McLean's great break that point, he knew none of this, uh, was that uh, they sent as head of uh, station in Washington, in the British Embassy in Washington, they sent um, Kim Philby. So Philby took one look at, as he put it, the diplomatic list and knew exactly who the spy was, the man he'd recruited, and asked uh, Moscow Station for instructions. A Moscow Station said, well, you have to we want him in place as long as possible, but he has to be uh, got out before he's he's caught. Um, and then there ensues a sort of farce of um, of British trust and uh, old school network and things, where McLean's name keeps coming up into the frame, and they keep saying, no, it can't be him. They're, they're not aware at this point. He's based in Cairo from 1948-50, where he is a spectacular drunk. He um, has had a fight with another diplomat, which involved breaking the diplomat's leg. He has trashed the American ambassador's secretary's apartment um, and broken her bath in two and thrown all her underwear around out of the window. And he's been found wandering in the Cairo park in the middle of the night in blackout. So this extraordinary behavior is going on, yet he's still showing up for work. He's still... Um, 
he's still their man. So every time the spotlight comes on to McLean, uh, it then moves away again because they they say it simply can't be him. The Americans, the Venona team and the FBI... Uh, liaison with Venona cannot believe the lackadaisical uh, way in which this um, investigation is being taken because it's a, it's a very very serious charge and uh, don't forget Venona has already uncovered um, Klaus Fuchs at Los Alamos and other Los Alamos spies and shortly is going to uncover the Rosenbergs um, but um, so it's really uh, the investigation goes on for three years, and it's really it, it's extraordinary. It was extraordinary to read in the files the way people kept saying it can't be McLean. He'd been given away in all but name by a Russian defector in, in 1939, had said there's a spy in the Foreign Office, he's got a Scottish name, he's under 30. I mean, he'd given away... So a lot of detail that should have pointed to McLean, but because he was such a gifted diplomat, nobody could believe it. And in the end, the final bit of evidence uh, that Venona uncovered was when Gardner decoded a tiny, uh, a few words um, from when McLean's first arrival in New York, before his handler had caught up with him from uh, London, and he'd had a younger, untried um, someone in the Soviet consulate in New York had sent a telegram saying Homer will be coming to Tyre, which is what they called New York. Washington was Carthage, New York was Tyre, uh, frequently to visit his pregnant wife. And Melinda was pregnant at that time. That was the that was the only clue that uh, got them to McLean. Uh, one of the suspects before McLean was finally pinpointed as the, as the spy was uh, then uh, Paul Gore Booth, later on, of course, uh, head of the uh, Foreign Office, Sir Paul Gore Booth, and later Lord Paul Gore Booth. Um, was he uh, ever notified uh, about the, I mean, subsequently, of course, that he was a suspect? I don't believe so. I'm sure he um, he went to his grave not knowing that he he was a suspect. Indeed, you're right. The, the head of security in the Washington embassy, um, when they brought this evidence in from 1940 uh, that Philby had alerted them to, to try and um, uh, keep control of the situation, um, the head of security decided it was Gore Booth um, on the grounds that Homer was a um, classical code name and Gore Booth had um, given a speech in Latin of, of such um, brilliance uh, in his Latin ability that therefore it was Gore Booth. I mean, it, it's it's the stuff of comedy, some of that. But no, I don't believe uh, Paul Gore Booth had a clue. What was the exact cause of McLean's breakdown in Egypt in 1949, where he was the head of chancery? It was um, it, it was alcoholism. It was, I, I believe, as the Cold War got chillier, and he was in Washington at the beginning of the um, Berlin airlift and, and those really frightening moments, 
um, he began to feel the divide between, as I said, he's he's he was a a star diplomat, and he believed in uh, Britain, but also he believed in the communist ideology. So his patriotism and his ideology were starting to tear him apart. He also. Um, was he was based in Cairo, which was a um, was the first time he'd seen real poverty close up, which he believed communism was the cure of, and also he was being asked to um, maintain um, the British government's um, uh, support of the, the massively corrupt. King Farouk. Uh, he'd already been in his last days in Washington, um, been noted at, at dinner parties by friends rather than by his employers, that he, he'd got more and more anti-capitalist. And I think all those factors, uh, and he used to trash his American hosts at dinner parties, I believe those factors uh, were what uh, tipped him over into his uh, severe alcoholism, and as I say, he he did these terrible things he to other people and to the secretary's flat, um, and was found wandering in blackout. So I think it was the increasing uh, Cold War plus his uh, situation, what he saw politically. I think um, just he couldn't bear it. Why was McLean not sacked after uh, his behavior in Egypt? Because it wasn't, it, it was, they didn't know what had happened. So he, he after the day after this, this flat trashing uh, expedition, uh, Melinda, his wife, went to the ambassador and said, Donald's having a nervous breakdown. Um, I think he needs to go home for treatment. And the ambassador, who hated um what he called tittle-tattle about so able an officer, said yes, of course. So McLean went home um, and uh, was given six months off work, but none of the bad behaviour made it onto his file. In fact, his his second-in-command at the embassy wrote a letter to a friend at the embassy, which is on file, blaming Melinda for what had gone on, saying, uh, you know, how these Americans like to hit it up a lot. And so he because he was he was untouchable and it, it didn't make it onto his file, even when he was back at work after this um, sick leave, he got very, very drunk at a party in London and uh, shouted across the room. What would I? What would you say if, to a friend of his? What would you say if I told you I was a communist, have been all my life? And a secretary in the Foreign Office overheard that and thought she ought to report it back. And there's a handwritten note um, from the head of personnel on McLean's file recounting this, and it just says Donald up to his old tricks again. So they they just you know they they let it go every time. That was uh, that memo was by George Middleton. Uh, the, the the last memo I've mentioned was by Robin Hooper. George Middleton was the person who who, who welcomed McLean back um, six months earlier, and um, with whom he'd served. And it was it it was very clubby the Foreign Office in those days. Middleton and McLean had served together in Washington. 
um, and Paris, I think. And um, they were old friends. And Middleton, yes, uh, didn't was who was then personnel, head of personnel, um, just said, what can we do for you? You know, took him out to lunch, um, said, do whatever you needs doing. It was, you know, extraordinary um, to read now. Why did your grandfather, but obviously not only him, uh, Middleton as well, as well as perhaps others, for all we know, perhaps Sir William Strang, the head of the Foreign Office, why did they make uh, McLean head of the American Department? Uh, because McLean had said he didn't want to serve abroad any longer, uh, or for this posting, he'd um, eight year, uh, six years abroad, which is quite a long time, um, and that he'd rather be at home. And it was a senior job that was vacant, and they assumed he'd had whatever treatment he needed for whatever was wrong with him. And, um, and it was a job fitting his... Uh, his his standing in the Foreign Office. Uh, after McLean absconded with Burgess to Moscow, uh, the Foreign Office uh, stated, uh, perhaps, I'm not sure officially, but certainly unofficially, that uh, the American Department was sort of a not very important department in the Foreign Office, mostly dealing with Latin America. Um, in point of fact, isn't it correct that uh, the American Department, at the very least, got copies of all of the major dispatches and diplomatic exchanges between the UK and the United States. Absolutely. And there was a book published about the Foreign Office at the same time, uh, at much the same time, that, that states how important um, the American Department is to, to uh, North American dealings as well as Latin America and indeed after McLean went were found in his safe um, the documents to do with um, the Prime, Prime Minister Attlee going to visit uh, Truman to persuade him not to uh, use nuclear weapons and which he'd, he'd threatened to and um, so McLean saw those highly sensitive papers and um, and I, that was part of the Foreign Office sort of um, trying to lessen their culpability after McLean defected was, was saying that. When exactly was McLean finally identified as uh, the most likely suspect of being the Russian spy Homer? Uh, in the beginning of April 1951, he they decoded these these words about his Melinda's pregnancy uh, that gave it away, and that's when they started following him, but not at evenings and weekends. And um, they were even so behaving in a very gentlemanly way. They couldn't actually have um, tried him in court without a confession because the Venona operation was too highly classified, could never be brought up in court. Um, so that was sort of why they're following him. But at the same time, they said um, uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't be searching his home. Melinda was pregnant again. She was due to have a baby. She did have a baby uh, in mid-June. And they said, well, we won't search his home till July because it would be too unsettling for Melinda, first of all pregnant, and then with a newborn. I mean, this extraordinary... Um, sort of lack of urgency continued uh, even when they knew uh, 
he was a spy of such magnitude. Um, they simply put watchers on him who were completely visible. A lot of his colleagues and he, indeed, um, as he was very tall, McLean, the watchers tend to be rather short. So several people noted that, that he had a sort of short man in a Trilby hat and a raincoat puffing after him wherever he went in London. And, um, uh, so even when they knew in April they were watching him, but they were doing nothing to uh, – they put telephone taps on his home telephone and his office phone, luckily for me. And um, But even so, they, they, they didn't um, display any desire to bring him in urgently at all. I, I think they were staving off the embarrassment that inevitably came when it – uh, was established that that's, that was their spy and the uh, the public outcry that ensued and and mistrust of the people that ran Britain that I think um, still lingers to and not lingers is still very evident today. Now the um, uh, organisation which was keeping uh, McLean under surveillance was MI5 or special Correct. branch. Uh, MI5, yes, yes. Now, um, how did McLean, McLean, of course, absconds with uh, Guy Burgess, another one mm -hmm. of the Fabulous Fives, in um, May 1951. How right. did McLean, and he ends up eventually in Moscow after first going to France, Switzerland, and then uh, eventually Eastern Czechoslovakia, and then Moscow, um, and then um, uh, some place, I forgot the name of the city. in Kubrachev, he yes. spends... Kubitschek, yes, yeah, uh, and um, it, he ends up there for a while. How did he adjust to life in Russia? Did he have um, difficulty in the transition the way that uh, Burgess did? No, I think he was very quite the opposite of Burgess. Um, Burgess, who hated being in Russia. He um, missed England. He missed the cricket. He missed the Times. Um, he drank. Well, he drank himself to death, effectively. McLean, on the other hand, got sober. I think the the divide had gone that I talked about earlier. He got sober. He worked extremely hard in his. Uh, his the profession he loved, which was foreign policy. He got a job in a foreign policy um, think tank, we'd call it today. He worked under a, an assumed name. This is after 1956, um, when he, re, he and Burgess re-emerged. Nobody knew what had happened to them for five years, so we had a pretty good idea. Um, he worked on an assumed name, so as not to draw attention to uh, to the fact that he was a, a famous spy. He wrote a book in 19, that was published in Britain and America in 1970, was the first time he'd used his name about British foreign policy since uh, Suez, which was in 1956. So after he left, he was, he was still involved in British foreign policy um, thinking. And uh, he was slightly on the dissident wing of um, Soviet life. Um, and I, I think he was um, content. And he, his letters home, 
of course, he knew they'd be opened by um, the Secret Services, but they they uh, paint a picture of of life his children and Melinda, um, which was a further terrible shock, um, defected in 1953 and joined him. And the children went to Soviet schools and and um, pioneer camps and all that sort of thing. And it's it's a picture of a man. Um, undivided again. Although um, Melinda, as well as uh, I think all three children, eventually end up in the West by the time McLean passes away. They do. Melinda, so the the extraordinary thing about Melinda's time there is uh, she uh, left McLean to live with Philby, um, the sort of ultimate betrayal. Uh, by Philby was to pinch McLean's wife for a few years. And then after that, um, they were really living separate lives. And she went back to America in 1979. Around that time, all three of his children um, and their wives and their own children left, which I think McLean, there's nothing I read uh, that expresses McLean's sadness about that, but it must have never been sad, except the one he gave one interview right at the end of his life, five days before he died, where which was published after he died, where he said he hoped his children were living the life they would have led um, had he not been a spy, which implies to me that he wasn't too unhappy that they left and felt that it was uh, um, their right to, to live lives in Britain and America as, as um, their British and American parents might have done if he hadn't been a spy. Finally, what is one to make of the career of Donald McLean? What should we take away from it today? I think we should take away... When I was writing the book, I came... Rather to my surprise, I found his consistency and strength of um, uh, his ideology in some ways admirable. That a man could um, who who did believe in Britain could uh, put himself and his family through such hell uh, because of a belief in in what his conscience told him. Um, so I think that there's something, I mean, I don't want to overstate um, whether that's admirable or not, but there's something remarkable in it, perhaps, let's say. Um, I think we, I take away the remarkable excitement in politics in the 1930s that perhaps we, we're now seeing again um, with the rise of populist movements as as was happening then but in between times we didn't feel uh we in the west i don't believe felt that excitement in politics um and i think uh that um i also take away that a man can work so hard for his country that he believes in as well as betray it uh it seems to me a, a an extraordinary um feat I would like to thank you very much, uh, Mr. Phillips, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you again, Mr. Phillips. Thank you for having me on.